You know, the English language is a fascinating language. It's frustrating, but it's fascinating because we've got a lot of flexibility to do things with our words and and our manner of speech that some other languages don't really have as well. And so we can do all sorts of crazy things. And, you know, like if I wanted to tell you something very simple, if I wanted to tell you just a very simple story and communicate just facts to you, I could say, the man drove the car. And you would understand what I was talking about. I wouldn't have to do a whole lot of explanation or anything like that, and immediately you would understand, I got a man, I got a car, I got driving, right? I mean, we'd be okay. Facts. I could build on that a little bit. And then I could say, well, the tall man drove a small car. And the image would be slightly different. That sounds like it's got the potential to be kind of a Dr. Seuss book, doesn't it? But you notice it's different than just the man drove the car. The tall man drove the small car. I could tell you the angry man drove a red car. And you're thinking that somehow there's an APB looking for an angry man, you know, with the potential of road rage in a red car. I could tell you the nervous man drove an overheated car. And we still had a man driving a car, but yet the images and what I conveyed and the communication, how you perceive that, how you close your eyes and understand it is completely different. And we've got adjectives to thank for that. Adjectives, those cute little modifiers that either speak to the quality or the quantity, the extent of a noun. And somehow describe it in such a way that differentiates it from anything else. Why do we care about that noun in that way? Well, we throw in an adjectives. And gifted writers, especially those that write menus. But gifted writers are really good at adjectives and their their cousin, the adverbs, to create either in in a movie or in a novel, in a story, as a speaker, whatever it is, to, to, where you can almost taste it, you can almost feel it. You can kind of, it's, it's as if you were there because of these adjectives and their use. But adjectives are tricky. They're very tricky. Uh, because adjectives are kind of one of those terms that if, if you ever noticed uh, that a lot of times adjectives are what we do in air quotes, right? That person was hysterical. Yes, Jim, that was a good sermon, right? I mean, we use we, adjectives we put in air quotes, and we do that for a reason, and I'll get to that here in just a second, but they're very, very tricky. They have limitations, and they can actually create a little bit of conflict. And that's why I described, you know, the, the topic or the sermon title, adjectives, ouch, Because sometimes they can hurt a little bit. Sometimes they can sting a little bit. Sometimes they can create this conflict. And and there can be little ouches. I can remember, it was a couple of years ago, because what ends up happening is as we can do great things with sort of the speech and we can get people to understand and and kind of everything like that and just where we just can sense it and just, just eloquence and everything like that. 
but still fundamentally not be able to communicate well. And a couple of years ago, I remember getting a group of people at the plant together and we just, we had some things that we needed to get done between kind of, you know, the beginning of the month and the end of the month. And I was trying to impress upon them this idea of just, let's just, you know, just keep it simple. You guys know what you need to do. This is not uncommon or anything like that. And my advice to them, my admonishment to them was don't do anything stupid. 30 days later, I got them together again and I had to apologize because clearly I needed to find the word stupid, <laughs> you know, in that. And I said, don't be stupid. And then I probably should have defined it a little bit better. And we understand how that works. Parents, especially parents of teenagers, you understand that while you can use adjectives, there are certain communications you can't make in adjectives. You cannot tell a teenager regarding their curfew, don't be late. Be home early. Because that's kind of ambiguous, isn't it? Well, is, is late, like, like when I was growing up, late would mean the end of the sports section on the 10 o'clock news. Now, some of you know what that means. That means somewhere right there around 1026, 1027 a.m. was the, I mean, that was it, right? Because we had the news, we had the weather, we had the sports. But if you just left it and say, okay, well, I don't know, is late when the sun comes up, mom and dad is, is early when, you know, you go to bed. You know, what's the, we, it, we, it doesn't work. We can't communicate that. Laws were enacted to keep us safe on the road. You know, so that people would not get hurt, we would not have fatalities or anything like that. And because of that, you cannot get a ticket for driving too fast. You cannot get a ticket for driving very fast. But you can get a whole lot of tickets for going 30 miles an hour or 40 miles an hour in a 25 or in a 20. See, it's not enough for them just to say, drive the appropriate speed. Because your appropriate and my appropriate could be very, very different, especially if we're running late. And that's how that works. I remember, I am old enough to remember the day that we went business casual on Fridays only. I mean, we were to wear a tie. And the communication came out just like that, effective such and such date, Fridays will be business casual. And that's all it said. Because casual to us meant that we weren't going to wear a tie that day. Casual later came to mean that, okay, maybe we wouldn't wear the coat. But it wasn't until several years later did they actually have to then communicate what is and isn't considered appropriate on casual. A couple weeks ago, I went in and got a haircut. And I just said, I want a slight trim. That was a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> now, what's kind of funny is some of you are laughing because you see me as balding. There are people in the auditorium that see me as hairy, right? Because adjectives work that way. And it's, it's important. Um, last week, 
couple more examples. We were in Nashville. We were staying in the hotel, and that's when I am reminded that water and ice behave differently in hotels at 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Because what I thought was a comfortable temperature, I was told was freezing, right? It changes. And some of these ouches are, they can be funny. Kind of these, like, I think that when we go out to eat as a family, I'm witty. I think I'm downright endearing. I've been told I'm embarrassing. <laughs> and that the, the, the time is painful. <laughs> and again, some of those are kind of funny. But then sometimes they step up and they, they, they can be maybe a little less funny. You ever spoken to someone and what they thought were they were being quiet and what you thought were they were being rude? I listened to a wonderful sermon last week as we were, as we were traveling. It was the sermon from Sunday morning and it was, it was humbling on the things that a father could do, should do, or anything like that. If you will allow me to provide sort of an unscripted epilogue to what was a great sermon, kids, not just you all, but all kids. Actually, I, I'm not going to talk to you guys. I'm going to talk to everybody else. If you love your kids, do not be afraid to get up in their face and explain to them where you look when you talk to somebody, how to address people, how to speak, how to say thank you how to open doors, how to do all of those things. Do that all day long because the definition of polite, the definition of respectful, the definition of courteous as adjectives are starting to change on us. And what's really interesting about it is adjectives reveal something about us. Our use and our belief in adjectives, how we, how we term things, says something about who we are, where our values are, and how we look at life, and how we see other people. And because there are some awkward times when my adjective that I would use runs right into another adjective, and we've got this, ouch. You ever had a conversation with somebody, and you were convinced that your words were honest, They were candid, they were helpful, they were forthcoming, maybe a little bit outspoken, but all in that vein, but the person to whom you were talking to found the words to be hurtful, found them destructive, found them unfriendly. When those adjectives collide, they reveal a little something about who we are and how we view things. You ever seen or been around, overheard a conversation where the one that was speaking was being informative, but the subject of the conversation probably thought it was a little more gossipy? Those adjectives collide. You ever been in a group at work when one of them or a couple of them thought the joke was funny? But profane was the only adjective that you could give to it. 
And in that world, you begin to understand that our use of adjectives, how we coin adjectives, our use of them and how we use them in in conversation, how we would target things or how we would identify things through those adjectives, say something very clear and transparent about who we are as people and what we value. Was the movie exciting or was it violent? Some of those adjectives really can sting. I have had to fire people for behavior that they deemed was normal, was customary, was typical, speech that was, you know, all of those things, but in the workplace, I had to point out that was inappropriate. And it was that adjective that sent them packing that day. And I I tell you all of this just so you can kind of appreciate adjectives, because one of the things I want you to do now is grab your Bible and open up your Bible. Because the Bible and its use of adjectives is absolutely amazing. And when I say that, I am quite certain that I did a poor job of picking an adjective by using the word amazing. I'm sure there's got to be something better and stronger than that. But amazing is what you get this morning. The Bible is absolutely amazing in its use of adjectives. Because on one hand, the Bible uses it, you know, a fair amount. You know, the Psalms 25 verse 8 says, Good and upright is the Lord. Now, there's kind of a weird derivation on how those are called adjectives, but I'll let, you know, someone else worry about that. But good and upright as these adjectives is the Lord. And so there are plenty of places where words like holy and reverent and powerful are used to describe God. And, and so adjectives are used, but yet, if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, be reminded of what Paul said. When Paul said in verses 1 and 2, he said, when I came to you, and, what, and I'm going to add a few things here, Paul said he was very careful about his speech. He said, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with a superiority of speech, with, with fanciness, and sometimes you know, uh, different words, depending on your translations, or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Paul says, no, I, you didn't get a lot of adjectives. Paul used adjectives. Paul used adverbs. But what Paul said is, but when I spoke to you, understand I spoke to you, Jesus Christ, and him crucified. So again, like I said, the Bible is fascinating and amazing in its use of adjectives because in some, they use it, the Bible uses it. His inspired writers are using adjectives at times. And then there are times when, no, it is just simply the facts. If you turn over to, turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 17. which I find interesting, amazing. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 4, when we talk about and we hear about Goliath, in the context of the description of Goliath, he's never called a giant at that moment. Instead, when we are introduced to Goliath, it's not adjectives, but it's facts that we're given. He says, the Bible tells us that he is six cubics and a span. Now, that's, from that we get, you know, a little over nine feet tall, pushing ten feet. And I think the reason the Bible didn't use he was tall is because 
we go to church with some tall people. I've seen tall people at the airport. I've seen people that I really strain to look up to. I've never seen somebody nine feet, ten feet tall. And so if God had just simply allowed his word to simply say tall, we might not have fully appreciated just what happened when David grabs the sling and the stone. But yet there are times, and it's important because context the Bible uses when the details maybe don't matter, but we probably get it. And context, like in Luke chapter 19, when we read about Zacchaeus, depending on your version, he's either small, short, or he's small in stature. The Bible doesn't tell us how tall he is. Now, for some of you, short could be, you know, six foot two. For some of you, short might be four two. That's not important. The important thing was we understand the context he couldn't see. I also believe on some level that they knew that VBS would be invented. And if we ever sang Zacchaeus was a four foot two man and a four foot two man was he, you know, the kids wouldn't listen to it near as well. But that's the important thing. In Judges chapter three, we are not given a weight and we are not given a BMI. In chapter 3, verse 17, when Eglon, the king, is described as a very fat man. And that when Ehud, the judge, thrust his sword all the way up in him, we have all enough from the Bible to get that. So the Bible uses context. The Bible also uses comparison. Words like tall and hot are used in the Bible, not as much as you think. Tall is probably between 6 and 12 times, depending on your version. Hot, right around 20. And each time those are used as adjectives, but in comparison to something else. If you turn in your Bibles and and you go to um, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, the Bible doesn't tell us how wide the wide gate is. He doesn't, it doesn't tell us how narrow the narrow gate is. But instead, adjectives are used to compare one another, you know, something that's very, very big, a whole lot more people going this way, and something that is very narrow. That's what I mean. The Bible is awesome and amazing in its use of adjectives. Because in that, the, the, God does not need to tell us exactly how wide the wide gate is or exactly how narrow the narrow gate is because it doesn't matter. What we need to understand is one is vastly bigger than the other. Sometimes the Bible calibrates us when it comes to adjectives. And that's where the sting of adjectives really start turning into an ouch. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, we begin to see what the word great means as an adjective. Whoever then annuls one of these, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Because we begin to see, remember we talked about how adjectives basically aren't always, we don't always get to define them. And in the Bible, the Bible defines it. 
at times. The Bible calibrates the use of these words, and we begin to understand what the word great really means when it comes to God. How many of you have ever been sort of off-put in Matthew chapter 25 by the parable of the talents? When the owners came, you know, had five and then two and then one and then came back and the five had doubled it and the two had doubled it, but the one with one didn't double it and just hid it. And the master, echoing the sentiments of the Almighty, looked at that and said to him and used a word that I never would have used. I don't think that I would have used the word wicked. I might have used lazy. But in the Bible, when it says, you wicked and you lazy servant, wicked would not be an adjective that I would have used. I might have said lazy. I might have said, oh, maybe it wasn't a great choice or anything like that. But when God blesses us with something, what he wants us to understand, to forego that blessing, to not use that blessing, to not appreciate that which he has entrusted us with, is tantamount to being wicked. And that definition stings a little bit. Flip on back to Matthew chapter chapter 6, excuse me, chapter 8, verse 26. And this is after Jesus and the disciples push away out into the sea. And things get kind of kind of a little topsy. Things get a little bit uncomfortable. It gets a little bit stormy. They get a little bit scared. Jesus is asleep. They wake Jesus up. And before he tells the seas to calm down, and it does in an instant, he looks at these people. These men that have been with him, these men that have seen things, that men that understand who he is and, and of whom he is, and everything like that, they, he looks at them and he says, why are you afraid? Okay, but then he goes on to say, men of little faith. I don't know that I would have used the word little. I probably would have been tempted to stick in the word understandable. Uh, it's understandable faith, right? I mean, you, you believe that I've got things under control, but you still get a little bit nervous. That's understandable faith. No, he says, no, you little faith. Then he got up and he rebuked the winds and he calmed. So there's times that, that context teaches us something. There's times comparison teaches us. There's times that the Bible calibrates us. And then there are times, and that's what we're going to talk about for the last few minutes here. There are times when the very use of certain adjectives just smacks us in the face. When God's use of these adjectives in describing situations or in describing the fact that he just used these words just catch us off guard. Or maybe it's just me. That he would say these things and that that would be the adjective that he would use to describe I can remember, you know, there are times, you know, that, that well, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll tell that story here in a second. If not, oh well. Um, and there are three words I want us to look at this morning. Rebellious, defiled, tyrannical. Those are interesting adjectives. Rebellious, this, this intentional disobedience. 
This, this intentional doing the wrong things, even when presented with that which is right. This intentional of, I want you to go that way, but going that way. The word rebellious, that's a strong word. And one of the things to understand is at no point in the Bible will you ever see either God or anybody sent of God as a prophet, as a teacher, as his very son, using adjectives, or any other word for that matter, indiscriminately. Every time that there's an adjective, it is very judicious. It is very calculated. It is thought through. God is not somebody who whimsically throws out adjectives to try to get people's attention or to create drama or anything like that. Never once has he done that. And so for him to use certain words like rebellious, that's a strong word. Defiled. Defiled meaning that they had gotten to the point that there was so much moral corruption that they just were devoid of anything moral. For a person to get to that point where God would say, you just, you are so absence of morality that the best adjective I can use is the word defiled. Tyrannical. Kind of sounds like a dinosaur, but it's not. Tyrannical is this word, is this idea that people would use their strength, their physical strength, to be oppressive and rebellious against other people. That they would be mean and they would be malicious in how they treated others. These are tough words. And yet, these are the words that you will see in Zephaniah chapter 3, if you'll turn there. And Zephaniah is not one of those that we get to very often. Somehow, Toby's got all the pages in the Pew Bibles memorized, and he just rattles them off. And so rather than try to tell you it's this hundred and this, I will just tell you the book of Zephaniah is the fourth one from the back of, in the Old Testament. So find the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, go four back. And Zephaniah, like so many of his colleagues were given a message to go to somebody. And his message was to go to the people. The son of Ammon, king of Judah, to Josiah. And God took issue with their behavior. God took issue with how they were living their life. God took issue with the the whole status of things. And in chapter 3, verse 1... He says, woe to you, but then he uses those three words. He says, rebellious, defiled, tyrannical. And understand, for God to use those words, those are, it, it ought to get your attention. My father was not someone who spoke a lot. He was, generally speaking, very kind of, kind of quiet. Uh, he was more content to kind of sit kind of at the end of the table and I don't know, amuse himself or just kind of sit and listen, and he didn't feel the need to speak or, or anything like that. He didn't feel the need to be outgoing. That's where I get it, you know. And thank goodness I'm married properly, so that my, my boys have a half a chance. But every now and then he would say something. And it would, and he, or he would say something that was so kind of over the top. And I remember one time, more than anything else, 
we were not allowed to say the word shut up. I don't know if you guys ever had that rule. You have no earthly idea, do you, what it's like just to, I mean, I mean, the things that got soap to your mouth and when I was a kid. Uh, but anyways, and, but I remember one time he said, shut up to me. And it wasn't so much that it was the words shut up, it's that he used words that were strong for him. And I took notice from what was about to happen. God is using very, very strong words. And not only are they strong words, but understand these are words that it saddens God to use. God takes no delight into looking at people that he loves, people that he has saved, people that he has rescued, people that he, you know, land of milk and honey and everything like that. God has, takes no desire in looking at any of them and using words like rebellious, defiled, or tyrannical. But God does through the mouth of Zephaniah. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled. A tyrannical city. So, in the last minute and a half, two minutes, I want us to look at the next verse. Because what does it take to get to the point that you could be rebellious, defiled, or tyrannical? Well, luckily, God, through Zephaniah, tells us in the immediately following verse, And he tells us four simple things here in chapter 3, verse 2. Four very simple, and they all kind of build on each other. And in some ways, maybe they're common sense. Okay, fine, then we'll we'll call this a common sense sermon. But he says there's four things. The first thing was they heeded no voice. Now that's simply translated, you know, out of the Hebrew as in they would not listen. Just simply tuned all ears out to anything. It wasn't that the ears didn't work. It wasn't that they couldn't hear. They chose not to listen. And we know people like that, don't we? Just the inability just to listen. Proverbs 18 verse 13 says, He who gives an answer before he hears, uh, it's folly and it's shame to him. And we know people like that. They have no earthly idea what you told them, what you asked them. But here comes the answer. And it's kind of fun sometimes watching themselves get themselves into trouble. Hey, did you know about that? Yeah, they told us. Oh. I mean, James 1 verse 19 is the one that we like. Sometimes you're talking about being quick to hear, but slow to speak. And I'll get quick to listen, to take time to understand. And there are times, using my dad's words, and I know we're not supposed to say it too often, sometimes we just need to shut up. I mean, we quite literally need to shut up. And listen to the wisdom that surrounds us. Listen to to facts. Listen to the blessings that God is trying to place in and on us. Then he goes on to say, not only do they hear no voice, they accepted no instruction. Now that's different. 
Accepting no instruction is the deliberate unwillingness to listen to either sound judgment, instruction, whatever that might be. But I know it, I heard it, but I'm not going to do it. You look throughout the account, Pharaoh was guilty of that quite a bit. When it said that Pharaoh didn't listen, Pharaoh didn't heed. Pharaoh knew and Pharaoh's ears worked in what God was telling him through Moses, but Pharaoh chose not to. And if there was a fork in the road when he was told to take A, he took B. Left when he should have taken right. Proverbs 8, verse 33, talks about heed instruction and be wise. Don't neglect it. Blessed is the man who listens to me. And again, what Proverbs is not saying is blessed is the one who has good hearing. I don't know if hearing is 2020 or how that works, but that's not it at all. But he's not saying blessed is the man who understands the, the, the signals that come through and can kind of make out the, the words and everything like that. He says, no, blessed is the man who will listen to what I'm saying. The third thing he points out, how do you get to be rebellious, defiled, and tyrannical? Well, you, you don't listen. You don't accept instruction. And then you don't trust in the Lord. Ooh, now it starts to sting a bit, doesn't it? Psalms 37 verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Trust in the Lord. In Joshua chapter 6, we see the story of the taking of Jericho. And that was an interesting way to fight. You remember, they marched around and everything like that, and they, it, the walls, they trusted in the Lord. And I think that chapter 5 had a little something to do with it, because in chapter 5, as Joshua speaks to the people, Joshua tells them, for the sons of Israel walked in the wilderness until all the nation, that is, the men of war who came out from Egypt, perished because, and this, notice what he says, they did not listen to the voice of the Lord. Job's wife told him in chapter 2 that maybe he ought to just curse God and die. But Job was committed to listening to God. And finally, if you want to be rebellious, defiled, and tyrannical, the Bible says, don't draw near to the Lord. That's how you get that way. Don't listen, don't heed instruction, don't trust in the Lord, and don't draw near to him. So important was this idea of drawing near to God and the lesson that the Hebrew writer used it several times in chapter 4, chapter 7 a couple of times, chapter 10 a couple of times, this idea of draw near to the Lord. Hebrews 7, verse 25, therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, always making intercession for them. Adjectives are fun. Adjectives can sting a little bit. Adjectives can be funny. Adjectives can be serious. 
Adjectives can help communicate in a great way, or adjectives can help humble us, especially when we begin to understand how God uses adjectives. This morning, this wasn't about English literature or, or grammar or anything like that, and so I'm hoping you enjoyed maybe some of it. And I'll get it wrong on some of the parts of speech with what I'm about to say. But there are a couple of adjectives that the Bible uses with great pride, with great joy, with great love, with great discernment. And God wants us to be able to use those same adjectives today. Words like redeemed. Words like forgiven, a word like reconciled. Okay, forgive me if I call those adjectives this morning, but understand that those are used in the Bible. Those are used by God. Those are used by God's Son. Because there are no more important adjectives that we could claim. And this morning, if you cannot claim an adjective like redeemed, an adjective like reconciled, an adjective like cleansed or saved, we invite you to come and go to the back and speak to the elders as together we stand and sing.